Wow, how's that for sound? This lovely man uh, put the microphone on me at Stanford, and then he said, try to project. (laughs) And I said, oh, do you get a lot of mellow people here (laughs) speaking? And he said, oh, yeah, very soft. So I said, well, I'm from New York. (laughs) I think I can do it. But if at any time someone can't hear me, please, like, let me know, okay? Um, And as soon as you said that, Sally, about this building, I I started getting nostalgic, you know, because I think I was a very early person to teach in this building. And uh, it's maybe not the most attractive building in some ways, and I'm no doubt allergic to it, as many of you probably are, but, uh, which is why I have a tissue against my nose all the time, but um, you know what it's like when you have an important experience in a place, that place itself starts to take on a certain kind of feeling tone for you, and uh, you feel at home, or you feel Uh, that special feeling when we do have a sense of belonging somewhere. And so um, I guess I'll say goodbye to this building at the end of tomorrow. Many of you are uh, perhaps coming tomorrow as well, so uh, I guess tomorrow will actually mark the last time that I'm teaching in this building. Well, we'll see. You never know uh, (laughs) what will happen. So today is devoted to the exploration of loving-kindness, tomorrow to equanimity. Uh, They are qualities that go together in a variety of ways, and it's really my favorite thing to be talking about. So how great. We'll have a chance to practice together, hopefully lots of time for questions or or just dialogue, and, and I'll speak about my thoughts at any rate about these qualities. So my book, Loving Kindness, was my first book, and it came out 20 years ago. So that's 20 years that's gone by really quickly, Um, along with the 20 before, which went by really quickly, uh, because uh, the Insight Meditation Society, which Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, and I co-founded on the East Coast, is about to have its 40th anniversary. So... Thank you. (laughs) It's really like, it feels like a miracle and a mystery. Like, how did that happen? As I uh, often tell the story, and it's true, the whole first year of our being in existence, our mantra was, we can always close in a year. You know, maybe no one in this country wants to learn how to meditate or learn this kind of meditation. We'll just close in a year. So we actually had not been able to get a mortgage because we were too, like, young and flaky and hippie-ish. And, uh, so three people had to personally co-sign a loan for us to be able to buy the place and move in. So they were not happy when we would say, we can always close in a year. Uh, but other than them, and of course we didn't. We stumbled through the first year and the second year, and then uh, here we are in the midst of what is sometimes called the mindfulness revolution, Uh, It's sort of an extraordinary change. And I uh, think the mindfulness conversation can well be opened up to really include a deeper consideration of qualities like compassion and so on. So um, a lot of you are no doubt familiar with the four Brahma Viharas and that whole 
conceptualization of the qualities of the heart. Um, for others, it will be more new, and all of that's good, whichever way. Um, the word Brahma in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist texts, is uh, translated as supreme or celestial. One translation I heard of it that I liked a lot was the word best. So let's take Brahma as best. And Vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are said to form our best home. And like any home, of course, we're not there all the time. We leave home. But there is a certain feeling when we get back there, right? That should be the place where we feel most authentic. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to act in some way. We feel relaxed. We have that sense of being grounded or rooted. We feel we belong. We're home. So these four qualities are said to form our best home. And they are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Now, some systems actually start with equanimity, so I'm really happy we have a whole day tomorrow to explore that quality. Equanimity in this context means the voice of wisdom. It's the balance that's brought about by wisdom or insight. It's like perspective. Um, it does not mean indifference. It does not mean not caring. It's a weird word. All of these words are a little strange, actually or certainly complex. My first meditation teacher, which was in India in January 1971, um, was S.N. Goenka, and he used to go around all the time saying, be equanimous, be equanimous, be equanimous. And we used to whisper to one another, is that a word? <laughs> like, do you ever hear that word? What does that mean? Does that mean something? So it's weird for us. Equanimity can sound like coldness or withdrawing, but it really does mean wisdom, which you kind of want, right, in every interaction. So it would, one example would be really caring about somebody and wanting so much to help them help ease their pain or help them see a way through some situation. And wisdom tells us we should that's the right thing to do, and in the end, we're not in control. We're not in control of someone else's choices. We're not in control of the unfolding of the universe. So that doesn't mean we stop caring. It means we care in a different way. And in fact, I think when we honestly look at life, life situations, it helps us care in a more sustained way, right? Rather than feeling I failed or hurry up and get better, or, you know, do it this way, and all those layers of expectation and demand, which actually weaken our effort to help. They don't sustain it. They don't strengthen it at all when we actually look. So that's why some systems start with equanimity, because they say, well, that has to be in place for any of these other three qualities to be kind of the fullness of what they can be. Right, rather than falling into some more distorted form, what uh, in the in the commentaries is sometimes called the near enemies. Somebody I was recently with called it a near miss. 
you know, it's like, may you be happy by Wednesday. I've got a long list of people, you know, you may be top of the list now, but that's not going to last. And here's your list of the 15 things you need to change so you get happy. Just as, you know, that's a little different than may you be happy, right? And so each of the qualities we talk about has, I like that phrase, a near miss. You know, on the surface it can seem like the same thing, but really it's very, very different. And so equanimity is the force that allows us to see that distinction. And I think, honestly, inevitably, we fall into those near misses, but we can come back. Right? So uh, I was not taught in a system where we start with equanimity. I was taught in a system where we start with loving kindness, and that's the basis. But implied within that, is some wisdom. It's some sense that we... uh, You're making a really sad face over there behind the live stream. (laughs) Okay, I'll just go on. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, The uh, loving-kindness forms like a foundation, but it's assumed there's wisdom there, right? And so... Uh, we'll say equanimity is always there, and that's why I was, I was kind of especially glad it gets its own day tomorrow, because um, I'll just weave it in in different ways today as we go through those other three qualities. So one way of understanding it, it's loving kindness, which I'll talk about at much greater length in a minute. It's compassion, uh, which is the trembling or the quivering of the heart as we recognize pain or suffering. It's an actual movement of the heart. And it's a movement toward to see if we can be of help. It's not a movement into to burn up or get overwhelmed. It's a movement toward to see if we can be of help. So you can see that there's some equanimity in there. The third quality is sympathetic joy or joy in the happiness of others. Rather than witnessing someone's success or good fortune and falling sway to the voice which so often arises within us that goes, ew, you know, I wish you had a little bit less going for you right now. Like, <laughs> you don't have to lose everything, but if the light could just dim a bit, that would be good. So in contrast to that, we actually feel happy for someone else's happiness. So those first three are very tied together, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and we'll talk about their different flavors and different challenges as well. But the three are considered practices of generosity. It's like generosity of the spirit, generosity of the heart. We're offering. It's gift-giving rather than that medium of exchange, like, I'll give you this, but I kind of want that in return, right? Or tell me it's the best book you've ever gotten, or or whatever it might be. So we're practicing a quality of generosity that is moving toward being able to make a freely given gift. It's an offering. And that's the spirit in which we, we, we do this practice. So Like any gift-giving, any offering, we have no guarantee about how that gift will be received. You can't 
insist that somebody receive the gift and thank you so profusely and tell you it's the best book they've ever gotten or whatever it is. You can't really say to somebody, something's going to happen in that room at 10.15 in the morning and I'd like you to not check your email, not check your cell phone, not have a conversation with anybody and not have a thought in your head before you appear. Come in as a completely blank slate. Because life's not like that, right? So there could be so many causes and conditions for why somebody receives that book and is like a little dismissive or, you know, maybe they, when they had, still had cell service, wherever that, be, you know, begins and ends here, uh, you know, they checked their messages and just found out they won like $10 million in the lottery. It's like they could not care less about that book. <laughs> and they kind of, yeah, thanks, you know. Or they checked their messages and there was something very disturbing that they heard. Or they had a really hard time driving here and they're like completely stressed. Or, you know, there's so many causes and conditions that come up in that moment. And here too, we need equanimity, right? So today we'll focus on the nature of giving and, and making that offering. But implied within it is wisdom, always. Because otherwise we're sunk, right? Then we're like much more in the realm of like, may you be happy by Tuesday. Well, maybe Thursday, but no later. And this is what you need to do. And, you know, the, the quality of the generosity itself really, really shifts. So uh, why don't we begin with a sitting, just with the breath, which I'll guide you through. And then I'll go on to talk some about loving kindness and we can move on to that. You're always welcome to stretch or move or wiggle or whatever you need to do. So I think it's really helpful to see how in any method, any technique, we're really also practicing qualities like, say, loving kindness or compassion, particularly toward ourselves. So in this method, which many of you, of course, are familiar with, we just settle our attention on the feeling of the breath, the actual sensations of the in and out breath. And this was the first meditation technique I ever learned when I went to India. And first of all, as many of you have heard me say, I was very disappointed. I thought, feel my breath. I came all the way to India. You know, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to change my whole life and make me a totally happy person? And then I thought, eh, how hard can this be? What'll it be, like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind starts to wander? And to my absolute astonishment, it was like one, you know, <laughs> or two, maybe four, maybe a half, and then I'd be gone, and I'd be way gone. So then comes that magic moment when we realize, oh, 
It's been quite some time since I last felt a breath. That's considered the most important moment in the whole process because that's the moment where we have the chance to be really different. So instead of getting down on yourself and blaming yourself and feeling like a failure, we practice letting go gently. It's what one of my teachers called exercising the letting go muscle. We practice letting go, and we practice with great compassion toward ourselves, beginning again. You just shepherd your attention back to the feeling of the breath. So if you have to do that 10 billion times in the time we're sitting here in one session, it's fine. So even if the word, the words loving kindness or compassion are never used, it's, it's there. That's what we're cultivating. So you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And it's fine to open your eyes midway or something if you find yourself getting really sleepy. See if you can find the place where the breath is strongest for you or clearest for you. Maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. Just the normal, natural breath. You find that place, bring your attention there, and rest. See if you can feel one breath. And if you like, you can use a quiet mental notation like in, out, in, out, or rising, falling, to help support the awareness of the breath, but very quiet. So your attention is really going to feeling the breath, one breath at a time. And if images or sounds or sensations or emotions should arise, but they're not very strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them flow on by. You're breathing. It's just one breath. But if something comes up, it really spins you away. You get lost in thought, lost in a fantasy, or you fall asleep. Don't worry about it. The most important moment in the whole process is the next moment. 
where we have the chance to be different. So instead of judging ourselves or blaming ourselves, we practice letting go. And with kindness toward ourselves, we practice beginning again.
So, I'm going to talk about loving kindness a little bit. We're going to do some walking meditation, uh, take a break within that, come back and do some sitting meditation, and then we'll have time for questions all before lunch. Okay, and then we'll continue on in the afternoon. Um, the word loving kindness, um, somebody, I was just on a stage with Andy Olensky, who's a, a Buddhist scholar, Pali scholar, who um, helped establish the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. And he said to me, I think you're the one who first used the word loving kindness. And I said, I hope not. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think I was. I think it's the common translation for this word metta, M-E-T-T-A, um, in Pali, the Pali language. Uh, it is the common translation. The literal translation of metta is friendship. Sometimes it's described as gentle, as in a gentle rain that falls upon the earth, not choosing and rejecting, like I'll fall on you but not on you. Um, and I think it, it's, like all these things, it's quite difficult to describe. It's got layers and layers and layers of subtlety within the actual experience of it. So it's hard to encapsulate in just a, a word or a phrase. I've had uh, other Buddhist scholars, not Andy, but um, different ones, say to me, why don't you just say love? You're being kind of meek. You know, just say love. Don't use this weird word, loving kindness. Nobody knows what it means. And uh, it's true, I have some concern about loving kindness as a term, even though it's the most popular translation, because it is not, unless you're in Woodacres or Berkeley or somewhere, it's not a word where you're going to be in a coffee shop somewhere and the conversation at the next table is likely to include the word loving kindness. It's happened to me now and then, and I'm always like over there. Uh, but it's so rare, and my concern is that it might make the quality itself seem somewhat archaic and removed from day-to-day -day life and precious in the negative sense of the word which of course is not meant to be implied. I also don't, even though I often slip and describe loving kindness as a feeling, I don't think it's an emotion. It might be an emotion sometimes, but I think it lives underneath the realm of emotion as a worldview, as a kind of knowing, a deep knowing within. Um, and I'll give you an example in a minute. And it's a deep knowing of connection, how connected all our lives are. Sometimes it has that kind of emotional tone, and it's very gratifying for us. And sometimes it doesn't, but it's still there. It's still transforming us. It's still transforming a relationship. And we tend to be dissatisfied because it doesn't have that rush that where we've now put it in that box. Um, I think it's bigger than that and deeper than that. The problem, of course, with the word love is that that, too, is extremely complex. Now I'm writing a book on love, so that's hard. Um, we mean so many different things when we say the word love. Sometimes we really frankly mean a medium of exchange. I will give you this if you give me that. I will love you if you love me in return. And you show it in these 15 ways. 
I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. You know, so how long is that going to last, right? It's a recognizable state. It's a very familiar state. I don't mean we should condemn that state or that response, but it's so fragile. It's so breakable. How can that hold us up? How can that lift us? How can that sustain us? It just can't. It's too... It's too varied. It's, it's too fragile. I would love myself as long as I never make a mistake. I mean, really. You know, I will love someone as long as they behave perfectly. That doesn't usually last long. Um, right? And so we're talking about a different kind of quality. And it's powerful and difficult, but powerful to explore what we mean by love, but uh, it just doesn't tend to be the most common translation of metta. Um, Metta, I think of as connection. It's a profound sense of connection. It means inclusivity. Rather than excluding someone or disregarding them or discounting them or looking through them, it's like looking at them and including them in our worldview. Um, as I said, it may have an emotional tone, it may not. It involves a really wholehearted attention. It's, it's almost like respecting the innate dignity of someone, even if you don't like them. And you might not like them. And you certainly might not give them money, or say yes to their request, or let them go home with you, or, or whatever it is. It's not really about the action we might take, which could be the choice we make of how to act in a certain situation might depend on a whole lot of other factors and should, but it's the motivation, it's the, it's the space from which we act. What's the heart space with which we behold one another and ourselves? Um, that's the world that loving kindness lives in. And we'll talk more about that as well. So I find two things pretty provocative, even after now it's been 20 years since Loving Kindness came out, and I've been teaching that that form so much, that method. Uh, One is the idea that people bring up all the time, that qualities like love or compassion are, are weakening us, that they're a little foolish, that if you're developing a loving heart, you'll end up being kind of sentimental and gooey and um, you'll let people hurt you and you won't take a stand, you won't be strong because after all, you're practicing love. And you'll let other people's other people be uh, badly treated or oppressed or, or whatever because you're being all loving, right? So that's a big thing and I, I'm often startled in a way by that, not startled anymore, but I'm struck by that, um, that thought that, you know, our idea of love has gotten, or loving kindness, has gotten so degraded in a way that we tend to think of it as, as a weakness, something foolish, rather than a power or a strength. And the other thing that's very provocative is the idea that this is trainable. It sounds very cold, very mechanistic, right? I went to Spirit Rock for a weekend, and I learned how to be loving. Um, Now I love myself totally, and 
others completely. Um, it, it sounds commodified. It sounds mechanical. And I sometimes think, I hear that a lot in terms of um, presentation, scientific presentations about loving kindness or compassion meditation, where the last comment from the researcher is usually, and from these findings, we can uh, begin to sense that compassion can be trained. And it always comes out as like a pronouncement, like this is big news. And I always sit there in the audience and think, hmm, wow. (laughs) Duh, you know, like... um, and from a Western perspective, it is kind of big news. I don't know if it's, we tend to think of these qualities as a gift and you either have it or you don't. And if you don't, you're out of luck or it's just too distasteful to think of training in them rather than having a kind of spontaneous emotional response to a situation. But from an Eastern point of view, a Buddhist point of view, absolutely these qualities are completely trainable because they rest on how we pay attention. And we know attention is trainable. That's what meditation is all about, is training our attention to be different, to be less fragmented, less distracted, more present, less cluttered with fears and habits of the past so that we can see more clearly what's going on. We train our attention to be more open, more flexible, almost... We play with our attention so we don't feel so stuck in old ways of reacting. We have a sense of creativity in how we we move through life. So we know attention is trainable. Otherwise, there would be no reason to be here. Um, And the qualities of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, as well as equanimity, rest on how we pay attention. So there are many techniques like uh, within the realm, within the world of mindfulness that are really about trying to see more clearly what our experience is. That's like the great uncluttering. Um, we have so many ways of being. Let's say something uncomfortable, something painful is happening emotionally or physically to you. A very strong habit many of us have is to then project it into the future, like what's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like next month? So not only are we experiencing the present moment's worth of discomfort, we're experiencing all of that anticipated pain on top of it, and it really hurts then, right? So mindfulness shows us, oh, this is what's actually happening right now, This is what I'm adding on to it, just from the force of habit. I can actually let go of all that and come back to my genuine, actual experience right now. It may still hurt, but it's not the same as pain plus, right? So there are very profound changes that happen for us as we practice mindfulness, The whole uh, sphere of method, methodology around loving kindness works a little differently because it's more about that, that play, right? It's 
noticing, oh, I have certain habits of attention and I'm going to stretch. I'm going to take a few risks. I'm going to look at myself in a different way. I'm going to look at someone else in a different way than I'm accustomed to. So it's like playing, right? It's that flexibility of attention that's the strongest component as well as focus and so on. So uh, it has intentionality built into it. The effort is not just to notice how we're reacting to something, but it's stretching, it's playing. What's it like if I do this instead of that? What's it like if I go into that store and I look at the clerk, not through them? That takes intentionality because the habit will be just look through them. I always do. Uh, They might as well be a piece of furniture for all we notice them. So what happens when we look at them instead? If we have the habit of assessing ourselves, looking back at ourselves at the end of the day, almost as though to evaluate, like, how did I do today? And let's just say we have the habit of pretty well only remembering the things we did wrong (laughs) or we regret or we feel we could have done better, let's just say. (laughs) So much so that maybe our whole sense of who we are and all that we will ever be just collapses around that really stupid thing we said at lunch at that meeting. (laughs) The stretch is almost like asking ourselves, anything else happened today? Like, any good within me? It's not make-believe, and it's not trying to gloss over mistakes or whatever. It's not like insisting, oh, wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch at that meeting? Maybe it was really stupid. And there are consequences for that. But that's not all that we are, ever. So it's that collapse we're challenging, that rigid identification only with the negative. It may be personal conditioning, it may be cultural conditioning, it may be something we've taken on from the outside. Whatever its source is, we all tend to do it. So it's like an experiment. It feels like risk-taking to think of the good within ourselves. That's the intentionality. But it's not coerced, it's not like violent, you know. Um, it's not trying to make believe... You know, that's all that there is, whatever. But it is including what we normally exclude. Or a very good example of this kind of uh, reflection or meditation is a gratitude reflection. Many people say that one of the most powerful things anybody can do is keep a gratitude journal. Just like at the end of the day, write down three things you're grateful for from the day. And I always say one of them can be that you're breathing. Like it doesn't have to be that grandiose. And I always say, this doesn't come easily to me. It doesn't come automatically to me. My personal conditioning, my cultural conditioning is such where I am so much more likely to come to the end of the day and think about everything I can complain about. You know, I disappointed myself because I did this and that person didn't show up for me and there's always an airline 
you know, that could have done better. And usually there's a phone service these days, which is really a burden. Um, that's just where my mind goes. And, you know, that might be true, but it's not the only truth. So what about including rather than excluding what I have to be grateful for? It's that kind of stretch. So, you know, people sometimes feel a little squeamish about that because they fear they're going to be phony or uh, hypocritical in some way. And it's important to understand it's not that at all. But it is really practicing a flexibility of attention that may take some intentionality. It takes some effort because we're not used to it. We may be used to something else altogether. So within the realm of loving kindness, the questions are who do we pay attention to? Who do we ignore? Who doesn't count for us? And what happens when we include rather than exclude? What do we pay attention to? Say it's ourselves and we're only looking at the negative or what we feel is wrong. What happens if we stretch and we include the good within ourselves? What happens if our attention's really fragmented? We're all over the place and distracted and scattered and, and we actually realize that and we gather. So maybe we're talking to a stranger and instead of just being lost in the 50 emails we need to send, we actually listen, right? So it's that movement to get there and be whole, be wholly attentive with a kind of openness, open-heartedness or willingness. What happens if we've already categorized somebody? Like, you're boring, I'm not going to listen. And we're stuck at a party talking to them. You know, what happens if we pull up that file and open it up again and listen? So it's fun, you know. <laughs> Rather than thinking of it like I have to be filled with blissful love, you know, by the end of the day, I wish it went to 5.30 instead of 5 so I have more time. Um, it's fun just to kind of get that sense of, ooh, this may be a little unaccustomed or this is a different way of looking at myself or others. We're playing. We're playing in these realms. That's what, is really, it, that's what it's really all about. So loving kindness, the, um, oh, so I was going to tell you a story. So this is, this was, I think this is an example of how it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, tremendously emotional. Um, so I went, I go to Washington, D.C. Uh, pretty regularly to teach and even though I live in Barry, Massachusetts, I also have a, a sublet apartment in New York City where I spend some time. So I usually leave for DC by train. I leave for you know that trip by train and take a train back. Um, and I'm sure you know we had like a, a hellish winter uh, on the East Coast. Somebody said to me today, oh, this feels like winter. And I was like, <laughs> you think so? <laughs> There's still snow in Barry, by the way, on the ground. At least there was last week. Um, so uh, I went to D.C., and that was a complicated trip because my train was canceled because of snow and whatever. Anyway, I got there taught my class that night. The next morning, I 
went back to the train station to take a train back to New York. So um, it was just one of those days where things didn't work. I bought an omelet in the train station, but there was a salad with it. The salad dressing leaked, so I had to throw it out before I could eat it. And the train was late by about like an hour and a half. I finally got on the train, and it went just far enough to be in the middle of nowhere, and it stopped. And they said, oh, the train in front of us is broken down. So we waited and waited and waited and waited. And finally, the train in front of us was fixed, I guess. And we went on. We made one station stop, and we went just far enough to be in the middle of nowhere. We broke down because the train hit some ice. You know, it runs like a cable car, so it hit ice. So we're stuck. And the conductor um, starts speaking and says, wow. You know, this particular part got broken. I've never seen that before. (laughs) But amazingly, we have a replacement part here. The thing is, it's so rare for that particular thing to break down that we need an inspector to come and make sure we've done it properly. So we wait and wait and wait and wait. Meanwhile, I'm canceling things that I have booked for the afternoon in New York because I was never going to make it. We wait and wait, and finally he says, oh, we're not going anywhere. So we're going to pull another train alongside. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Like, They pull another train alongside, and they lay like these planks, sort of, and you walk across the plank to get to the other train. So we finally, they finally pulled the train up. We did that got into the other train, which happened to be a local, right? So, And I had a class that night in New York City. So all told, door to door, it was an eight-hour trip to get to my apartment uh, and get ready to go teach my class, right? So I was exhausted. I was hungry. I got into the elevator, uh, and there was a woman there, someone I didn't know at all. She was a complete stranger. And she said to me, it's my birthday today. (laughs) And I looked at her, and I thought, oh, my God. You know, like, you should hear about my day. You know, like, eh. And then it was very interesting for me because I realized, looking back, that if she had seemed lonely or suffering, if I had the thought, wow, she has no one to celebrate with her except this total stranger in an elevator, I would have gotten there immediately. But she seemed pretty happy. (laughs) And so it was a moment or two (laughs) before I could let go of my complaining and just be happy for her. And I just said, wow, that's great. I hope I didn't tell her about meeting dinner, you know, or like, or everything I missed that afternoon. I felt like I just got there for her, and it was such a sense of joy. I just said, that's so great. I hope you have a really, really good time. And still beaming, you know, radiant. She got off the floor before me. And I thought, okay, now I can go back to complaining, or (laughs) I can just be happy for her, right? That's what I mean by love. I didn't feel like I loved her, you know, in the conventional sense that kind of bathed in warmth and appreciation but I felt like I got there for her and it was so wholehearted I felt fully there and happy for her happiness and and just present with her
and realizing my stuff didn't have to take center stage in that moment. And that was actually a joyful state for me. So that's just like a kind of example of not just putting our ideas of loving kindness or even love into that basket of high emotion, but just that kind of knowing, wow, it's your birthday, that's so cool. Or here's a human being who wants to be happy, just like I do. Um, that sense of inclusion, of being touched by and touching and, and connecting, that really is the essence of loving kindness. So I say all that because I know we can drive ourselves crazy thinking it's not real, it's not strong enough. Everyone else is sitting here awash in bliss. And I, I have no heart. You know, it's just not working. Or yesterday I had two minutes of love. Why isn't it five today? Or, you know, so honestly, I say this not as solace, you know, but because I believe it's true. You don't have to worry about what you're feeling in doing this practice. Of course, you don't want it to be rote and meaningless, but the engine for the practice to grow is our complete wholehearted presence in the actual medium of loving kindness meditation rather than something like the feeling of the breath we are centering our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases and the phrases are the way we are redirecting and reorienting how we're paying attention instead of overlooking someone we're looking at them through the phrase Instead of only looking at the negative, we're including more through the phrase, right? So that's how we are contouring this change in attention, is through the silent repetition of these phrases. The skill set is very similar. We rest our attention on a phrase, just the way we rested our attention on a feeling of the breath. Our minds go everywhere. We gently let go and we come back. And through that, over time, there will come the transformation of our sense of belonging and connection. Uh, it's almost like we reach underneath the normal habits we have to find something that is actually there and, and very genuine, not something where we're fabricating in the moment. So... Uh, We'll talk a little later and more extensively about doing loving-kindness practice while sitting. The first form we're going to do is walking. And walking is also symbolic. You don't have to do walking. When I say walking, you know, you don't actually have to walk, um, especially, you know, if you have a physical uh, concern about walking. Or um, The idea is that we do this practice eyes open, um, in some way that we are in connection to others. So uh, it could be that you go sit outside or uh, whatever form you want it to take, but I'll talk about it as walking as an example. Um, in sitting meditation and doing loving kindness, often we use three or four phrases walking is a little bit more complex an activity. So sometimes it's just two phrases. This is up to you. It's like an experiment. Eyes open. Uh, 
And if we're walking, I would really do urge you to get outside. We walk at a normal pace in doing loving-kindness practice. Sometimes you might slow down a little bit just because there's not enough room or you want to play with that. But it's really not about slowing down and trying to feel exquisitely the sensations in your body. It's about resting your attention on these phrases as you're walking. So clearly that resting, that attention needs to be like a light attention. You don't want to like hunker down and try to block out everything going on around you. It's just you have a touchstone. Even as you're walking, even as you're taking in what's going on around you, you have something to keep returning to. And I should also say, your mind will wander incessantly. It's very hard with eyes open (coughs) uh, because the visual sense is very tempting for us, like, I need a tree like that, (laughs) but I don't have a garden. I need to move. Where should I move to? Right? Maybe I can have a bonsai. Um, You know, and you realize that you're like cultivating 50 bonsai trees in your mind. You realize that, gently let go and come back, right? Again, if you have to do that over and over and over again, that's okay. So we choose, let's say two, you can try more phrases. You rest your attention lightly on the repetition of the phrases. Your mind will wander, you bring it back. Now there are many styles, many methods for all of these techniques. tell you the form of loving kindness while walking I like the most. Um, And that is to walk gently repeating phrases of loving kindness for myself. So it may be, may I be happy, be peaceful. Be happy, be peaceful. And then when someone comes strongly into my consciousness, I hear a bird, I hear a dog, I hear a horse. I see a person coming by. Um, Or even I have a strong sense of someone at home. For a moment, I just turn my attention to them. Like, oh, be happy. And then I come back to the touchstone of the phrases for myself. I like doing it that way in part because if you're like out there, there's a lot of life out there, right? And you can get really jangly, like, Be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy. Compared to having that base from which you kind of go out and come back. Uh, And I like it because it's fun. Maybe you're afraid of dogs and you hear a dog. You see everything that comes up about that? I'll be happy. Maybe. Uh, Or I do this all the time walking down the streets of New York City. Um... And it's fun in part because all the same judgments arise. Like, you should have worn a warmer coat. Be happy. Um, You know? And so you get to see that and feel like all those different things. Uh, Silent repetition of the phrases. I was teaching um, in Berkeley one year, and uh, we had a, uh, we were, it was a yoga center, and so we had to do our walking meditation kind of out in the streets and come back, which was one of my favorite things to do. And uh, 
either I had not been clear enough or someone misunderstood because they came back in and they said, oh, you know, I, I saw this group of people on the street corner and I mustered up all my courage and I went up to them and I said, may you be happy. And I thought, at least it's Berkeley, you know, like, you know, but silent repetition of the phrases. Okay, and speaking of silence, I'm going to ask you to take this next period really as a time for practice. Uh, and I think we're going to need, given the size of the group and the lines for the bathroom and the fact that this is a break as well, probably something like 40 minutes, okay? Um, if you get tired, you can always come back in here, which will be silent and, and sit. Uh, but between doing some walking practice and having a break, I think it'll probably take that long. Um, and so if you could refrain from turning on your device or uh, having a conversation, unless you need to, of course, then, then please feel free. Um, uh, but use it as a time for practice, whether you're, you're literally doing walking or not, okay? And we'll come back here and we'll do a sitting and we'll have time for questions. So how's the world out there? (laughs) There's a beautiful quotation from the late theologian Howard Thurman who said, look at the world with quiet eyes. Look at the world with quiet eyes. I've always loved that. I wanted to use it <clears throat> as a book title once, and the publisher didn't like it. They said no one will understand it because we, we don't look quietly. We listen quietly. But I always liked it. Look at the world with quiet eyes. And it reminds me of doing walking meditation of one kind or another, just 
kind of softening our gaze and not, sometimes I think we're more like those cartoon characters whose eyes are out on springs, like, you know, maybe I need a new shawl, <laughs> whatever it is, or, you know, bad choice. Uh, but to have that kind of uh, gentleness and receptivity is, is part of that practice. So I always say that part about the book title because I think it's a good book title if any of you want to use it. <laughs> okay, so there are a lot of ways of understanding loving kindness. The best way is experientially because I'm all caught in something. Um, because it grew... It um, has so many layers of nuance and subtlety as we actually experience it. So don't think of it as being forced to feel something or uh, in any way coercive, but we're inclining the mind, we're opening, we're, we're playing with our consciousness to see what happens. That's actually my very favorite thing to say about loving kindness. It's like, what happens? What happens if I look at the good within me rather than just the mistakes I've made? What happens when I look at someone instead of through them? Like, what happens? So that's kind of the spirit. That's why it can be fun. If you have a concept of measurement and achievement, it's really a painful practice. <laughs> you know, that's the place from which we think, I have no heart. Everyone else in the room is sitting here in bliss. It's just me. I've got till five to forgive everybody. Um, I don't know if that gets covered under equanimity. So, uh, you know, it's too much. And it's not effective. It's actually not a useful way of making progress. I asked... Rick Hansen, uh, once we were teaching together in Chicago, I asked him, uh, this is more maybe also reflective of what I was talking about with the breath meditation, needing to let go and start again, which is really true of every meditation. And I, I asked him if there were studies about um, the results of having self-compassion, having that kindness toward yourself when you've made a mistake or you've slipped up or you messed up or something and needing to start over rather than being harsh and mean and uh, just judging yourself so mercilessly as we can do. And he said, uh, this was you know a little while ago, he didn't know specifically of a study around self-compassion, but... He said there are tons of performance studies of every kind that show that harshness, fear, that, that kind of environment will really elevate your performance briefly, and then you'll crash. That there'll be that spike, and you cannot sustain it. So it's not like a healthy inner or outer environment in which to make progress in the long term, right? To sustain an effort, to try to accomplish something, to try to get something done. And I say that 
because so much of the time I do get feedback because that's like my big thing, right? Begin again, begin again. Um, <clears throat> you know, people say to me, well, that's just being lazy. You know, that means I'll screw up and I'll say, oh, what the hell? I forgive myself. I'll forgive myself in two and a half minutes when I do it again. Um, that's letting go of standards of excellence or strong aspiration. I, th- I don't think it's true. I think if we actually look at our experience, that harshness and belittlement and all of that stuff doesn't help us go forward. It just drags us down. And so uh, we begin to really explore kind of the environment that is created through kindness and openness toward ourselves and, and toward others. In practicing loving kindness while sitting, uh, many of you I know are, are familiar with this as well, um, usually there are more phrases rather than the two I suggested for walking. It doesn't have to be, but often there are three or four phrases. I will say that being words, I think they will not be perfect. So I usually suggest someone look for good enough phrases. Remember, they're serving us. They're serving as a vehicle for paying attention differently. They will not be perfect. You don't want them so um, difficult for you that there's any sense of struggle. That wouldn't be good. But the other side of that is that they may not be perfect. And yet, first of all, they deepen in meaning as time goes on. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And they also are doing something. They're, they're like performing a function. right? So as long as they're good enough, uh, they will serve us in that way. So I went to Burma in 1985, which was the first time I had the chance to practice loving-kindness meditation in an intensive, structured way with guidance. I'd always wanted to, and I'd always done it, as one does, you know, for a little bit at the end of a retreat, maybe, almost in a kind of ceremonial way, um, or little fragments of instruction. I knew how it was done, but I'd never really uh, done it with that kind of structure. So I went to Burma for three months to, to do loving-kindness practice. And... Um, which phrases you used were, it was often dependent on who was translating that day, right? Because these are all translations. And I will say I had like a tremendously transforming time doing that practice. And these were my phrases. May I, beginning with oneself, be, may I be free from danger May I be free from mental suffering. May I be free from physical suffering. May I have ease of well-being, or may I live with ease. May I be free from danger. May I be free from mental suffering. May I be free from physical suffering. May I have ease of well-being, or may I live with ease. So first of all, I'd say I didn't really like that last phrase. I thought, that is so petty. Like, especially compared to may I be free from mental suffering, that I can get behind. (laughs) You know, but may I live with ease, which means, you know, it doesn't mean luxury. It means 
in the things of day-to-day life, like livelihood and family, may it not be such a struggle. May I live with ease, like ease of heart. And still I thought, that's so petty. And then one day, but I just used it, right? Because there I was in Burma. And uh, one day it's like something shifted inside of me. And I thought, wow, our lives are so complicated. We have so many choices and so many decisions to make and so many kind of crazy moral dilemmas. And I thought, may I live with ease? That's like my favorite phrase. (laughs) This is in contrast to many, many years later, I was teaching. And uh, I have a friend uh, who, at the time, she worked for the federal government in D.C. She's since retired. But she loved that phrase. That became like the the navigating guidepost of her life. Everything had to pass the may I live with ease test <laughs> before she'd agree to do it. And so and I have another friend who's an artist who made me a stamp, uh, having heard that story that said something like, does this pass the may I live with ease test? So I lent the stamp to my friend who worked in the federal government And every once in a while, she would just, like, stamp a document (laughs) with that and send it on its way throughout the bureaucracy, which I thought was very funny. You know, so she, in contrast to me, right away, she felt like that was her phrase. Okay, so that's part of it. It's like if they're good enough and you keep utilizing them, they will deepen and change in meaning. The other side of it is that, so those were the phrases I was given, and those were the phrases I used, and I had this extraordinary, incredible time in Burma. Then I came back, and I started teaching. So Sylvia Borstein was my first meta student uh, in Barry, Mass. And uh, she said to me that by that time, I had changed the phrases somewhat uh, to, so these are the phrases I gave her, uh, may I be free from danger, May I have mental happiness? May I have physical happiness? May I have ease of well-being? And then, uh, this is like a California joke, I'm sorry. I came out to California to teach. And, uh, you know, long before Spirit Rock was in existence. And I gave the first instruction, I guess using those phrases, and then I rang the bell. And I looked up, and there was a line of people, like, stretching way back to complain to me (laughs) that uh, they didn't want to use a word like danger. They didn't want to repeat a word that had a kind of negativity to it, even though it was free from danger. Um, And even though I had used all those phrases in Burma that were, you know, three out of four were very much in that light, and it was an extraordinary time for me. I also know it's not good to struggle, right? So that's why these days you largely hear suggested phrases like, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, which is really the evolution of um, physical happiness. It may not mean perfect health in the conventional sense, Um, but something deeper than that, may I live with ease. So those are often what you hear as suggestions. May I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. So you don't have to use those phrases. You can use any three or four phrases that 
resonate with you. I, I know a lot of people really resonate with a word like peace um, and sometimes ease of heart rather than ease. You know, so it's really up to you. You don't want to spend an endless period of time trying to think of your phrases, but uh, a little bit of time or just use the phrases that are suggested because they will, unless you feel, you know, really against them, which, in which case they're not the right ones. Um, we choose three or four phrases. We repeat them over and over again. Offering. This is gift giving. Um, it's, the feeling tone is one of blessing ourselves and others. So we make this offering uh, to various categories of beings. Classically, we start with ourselves. Ironically for us, the reason that the sequence is the way it is is because it's meant, the practice is meant to be done in the easiest way possible. And we ourselves are considered the easiest person classically, to offer loving kindness to. And we move from there to, if you're doing the whole sequence, which we won't do in any one sitting here because there's not enough time, um, a benefactor, uh, someone who's helped you. Maybe they've helped you directly. They've helped pick you up when you've fallen down or they inspired you from afar and maybe you never met them. The texts say this is the one who, when you think of them, you smile. So it's somebody who brings that sensibility to you, whether you've met them or not. And they're like an embodiment of, of love. So it may be an adult, maybe a child, maybe a pet, whatever it is. That's your benefactor. Then a friend, then a neutral person, someone you don't particularly like or dislike. And we're going to go through this throughout the day. Then a difficult person. And in the light of that basic guideline, not the most difficult person imaginable in your life, at least not right away, because there's a lot of kind of embodied learning that is happening along the way. Like, what in the world can it mean to have loving kindness for yourself as well as for someone else? What can it mean to have compassion for someone and know it is just wrong to give in? Or to have compassion for someone and realize, I can't fix it. And we're not necessarily at all analyzing it, but we're going through experientially different phases and different stages so that we have much more of it. Even if you never have the words for it, you have a kind of deeper inner knowing of what that might possibly mean. So you bring that to this much more difficult person. Right, rather than just feeling so discouraged right away because it's just so hard. And we play. It's always correct to go back to loving kindness for yourself if anything is feeling too overwhelming. It's not a cop-out. doesn't mean you're weak and you can't do the real thing. That is the real thing. Okay, so it's oneself, a benefactor, a friend, a neutral person, a difficult person, and then all beings everywhere in a kind of open extension of loving kindness. Now, we're not going to do that in any one sitting. One doesn't, really. It's, it's unreasonable, unless you're going really fast. Um, 
so usually we say the bookends are starting with yourself and ending with all beings everywhere. And at home, if you're doing this practice, what you do in the middle, maybe you, know, maybe you have a friend who's uh, done something really nice for you and you feel grateful to them. You have a friend who's in trouble. Um, your neutral person is your dry cleaner and you happen to be going to the dry cleaner later that day. You know, it could be a lot of different reasons that you choose what you do in that middle portion and then end with all beings everywhere. So those are the basic bookends, yourself and then all beings everywhere. And if you find that you yourself are just too hard, start with a benefactor. I'm going to guide this as though we're starting with ourselves, but it's not wrong at all if you make that choice to start with a benefactor. and You have to include yourself somewhere along the line, but you can tuck yourself in later, you know, if you want. People do it all kinds of different ways, like maybe they're offering loving kindness to all beings everywhere, and they pop up like a pop-up ad in the computer. I don't know if we still have those. Do we have them? You know, <clears throat> uh, and they never go away, and then you... Uh, you know, you include yourself that way. You play. You know, this is a playful practice. So the essence of the, the mechanics of any practice of meditation, it's balance. And sometimes we talk about, I mean, the uh, kind of clearest way or the most um, uh, instrumental way, it's about balance. <clears throat> Not only those grand balances of love for ourselves as well as love for others. But the immediate balance is usually between calm, quieting, tranquility on the one side, and energy, interest, connection on the other side. That's the dynamic of deepening meditation practice. Because the methods develop both. They don't always develop both, or we're not always experiencing both in a perfect balance. If there's a lot more calm and tranquility present in our system than energy and aliveness, uh, we fall into the state which is classically known as sinking mind. I call it the ooze. And you kind of ooze along, and then you fall asleep. And I'll say more about that in a minute. If there's much more energy in your system than calm and tranquility, you'll start to get agitated and then worried and, and restless, right? That doesn't mean energy is bad. Energy is great, but you also want it balanced, right? Which will help it be channeled and useful. So we're always kind of working with that right there. Uh, Loving-kindness practice brings in another element because um, it's so relational, or it brings in an enhancement of these elements, I should say, because it's so relational. These are real beings we're thinking of. It's not a composite figure like a, you know, imagined homeless person or something like that. These are beings that we know. They may be homeless or not, but, but we know them or at least we've seen them, right? So 
because relationships tend to be so complicated, we often put an emphasis on method, structure, simplicity to make that calm, concentrated part steadier. So uh, here's just one example. Um, as we go through these various categories, certainly if you're doing an intensive retreat in loving kindness, maybe you think of a benefactor and you're offering them loving kindness and everything is going great and you think, wait a minute, there was that one time. <laughs> you know, I called them and they weren't really there for me. Maybe they're not my benefactor. Maybe they're my difficult person. As the Dalai Lama says, quoting Shanti Deva, this great Tibetan sage, friends become enemies, enemies become friends. Life is complicated. We're complicated. And there's nothing easier in this particular practice than just endlessly telling a story. So there I was in Burma in 1985, uh, practicing loving kindness intensively. My teacher was this Burmese monk, Saito Upandita, and... He said to me one day, I want you to go back to your room and offer loving kindness to a good friend. So I went back to my room. I thought of a friend right away. And right away I started thinking, what's the time difference between Northampton, Massachusetts and Rangoon? Oh, I think it's dinner time there. I wonder if she's gone out to dinner. I bet she's gone out to dinner. Which restaurant would she have gone to? This is a totally true story. Would she have gone to the Japanese restaurant or would she have gone to the Italian restaurant or would she? No, I don't think she could have gone to the Greek restaurant. I think that Greek restaurant closed. <laughs> Isn't it odd? Restaurants on that corner always close. <laughs> I don't know why. It's really close to Smith College. It's got really good parking. There's no reason for those restaurants to always close. Maybe it's bad feng shui. What is feng shui anyway, you know? So it's like gone. So there's not a lot of power in concent of concentration there, is there? Like, may you be happy. May you be peaceful. It's not very present. And it is so easy in this practice. You know, you think of someone and there's a story. And that's okay. But you don't want to go off in the story. Um, you want a sense of them because that's what is, is vitalizing. It's energizing. You're not just saying these random words. You're not just saying them rotely. But we need some structure, right? We need some grounding. That's why I say try to use the same phrases. Um, if you're feeling in any way restless or the, like there's maybe a little too much energy, then you want to come back to simplicity. Don't try to have five people in that middle portion. Maybe it's one or two, right? The simpler things are, the easier it will be to concentrate. That's the basic rule. But you don't want them so simple or so dull that you're just falling asleep because we also need some energy. That might be why you choose to do walking or you choose to have a new recipient or you aim your attention really carefully toward each phrase so that it's not just a mechanical thing you're saying, where you use active imagination for a few moments. What would it look like if this person were happy, if I were happy? And then you go back to the 
structure. So I just want to say one thing about sinking mind in loving kindness, and then we'll sit. Um, and that is, uh, well, two things. One is that imbalance will always happen. You know, it's not like a bad sign because uh, something is developing one side or another. And so we just realize that and we, we come back into better balance. Now, in loving kindness, because it's more active, it's more expressive, we're using words that mean something, it's usually easier to pick up sinking mind more quickly. If you're with the breath, you might ooze along for a good long time before you realize that. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons we use mental noting, like in-out, because it helps pick up our energy. But with loving kindness, usually what happens is that very quickly, if you go into that kind of imbalance, the phrases will get garbled. So in Burma, for example, I'd hear myself repeating, may you be filled with suffering, may you be filled, and I'd go, no, may you be free of suffering. Or once it was, may I fall asleep, and I was like, no. Or it still remains my favorite example until someone gives me a funnier one. Um, I have a friend who's Swiss who came to sit at IMS once, and he was doing this practice, and because he's Swiss, English is his fourth language. And his phrases were something like, may I be healthy and well, may I live with ease. And one day he heard himself repeating, may I be wealthy in hell, and may I live with eels. And he just kept repeating it. And then he thought, that sounds funny. So he kind of flipped back to his first language, which is Swiss German. And he went, oh, right. You know, so you may find yourself repeating, may I live with eels or something like that. And that's good feedback that we need to kind of pick up our energy. Sometimes you just open your eyes or you just sharpen the connection with the phrase or the sense of the recipient. It's usually not hard to come back into some balance once we realize that we're kind of off in some way. Okay, so uh, we'll have a, a sitting and then a little time for questions, and then we'll pick up with uh, questions again in the afternoon. And the, the lunch period is long enough so that there should be time to do walking or, or just to rest, whatever you want to do. So see if you can sit comfortably. They say that's the first thing the Buddha said about loving-kindness. You can close your eyes or not. See if your energy can settle in your body. Sometimes people like to repeat these phrases along with feeling the breath, either the normal breath or the breath in and out of the heart center in the center of the chest, or just if that gets too complicated, just rest your attention on the phrases. That's this style of practice. Choose three or four phrases like, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Phrases that are good enough for you. Just repeat them over and over again with enough space and enough silence so that it's a rhythm that's pleasing to you. 
I have a friend who said he thought he'd get extra credit for saying more phrases. He said them really fast. Get a lot in. You don't need to do that. This is like the song of the heart. Gather all your attention behind one phrase. And then the next. You don't have to try to fabricate or manufacture any particular feeling. It's that complete wholehearted presence that is the engine for this practice. And when you find your attention has wandered, see if you can gently let go and come back. The first recipient is classically yourself.
and see if you can think of a benefactor, someone who's helped you directly or indirectly, or someone who symbolizes the power of love for you. And if someone like that comes to mind, bring them here. You can get an image of them, say their name to yourself, get a feeling for their presence, and offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. And then somebody here you didn't know before you got here. You may not know their name or anything about them, but you could just get a feeling for them. So this is a person, inevitably, who wants to be happy just as we do. Who is vulnerable to change and loss just as we are. See what happens as you, you offer this gift of loving kindness to them.
And then everybody here, some of whom you know quite well, some of whom you don't know at all, and yourself. May we be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease, or whatever your phrases may be. And all beings everywhere, all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown, may all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease.
So we have time just for a couple of questions now. We'll pick up. We'll start with questions in the afternoon um, and have some uh, longer sittings as well as a walking period in the afternoon. So we have a bodhisattva of communication here who's got a microphone, which uh, I'm putting you in charge of choosing the person. Um, and uh, I really need you to use the microphone, okay? <coughs> Go for it. Thank you. Um, I have a daughter I've been saying loving kindness for for 20 years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I wonder where our children, our loved ones fit in your lexicon. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, there are a lot of different places. Um, they really could fit anywhere because life is so complicated. <laughs> You know, they could be a benefactor, they could be a friend, um, probably rarely a neutral person. Although sometimes I was talking to someone once and I said I had a vision of teaching a loving-kindness retreat where we just chose one person as the recipient and the parts of them we admired, they were like our benefactor. The parts of them we felt comfortable with, they were like our friend. The parts of them we didn't know that were more hidden to us, they were like our neutral person. The parts of them we didn't like, they were like our difficult person. And the person I was talking to said, well, you know, you could just choose yourself because <laughs> you play all those different roles with yourself, which is true. Um, so that's one way. And also we tend to, uh, I kind of skipped a step in my description because sometimes after the difficult person, before all beings everywhere in these um, kind of global, in this global sense, we do groups. So my, but we tend to try to choose, try to include pairs of opposites or complementary sets. So it might be all beings in my family, all those in my family, and then all those not in my family, something like that. So there are a couple of different ways where that that would come in. Uh, Sharon, it's an, it was an honor. I first sat with you over 40, for, over 40 years ago. You had just returned from um, India. India. And it's such an honor to be with you today. I'm here actually celebrating my 61st birthday with my husband and my daughters, all wow. practitioners. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much for guiding me all these years. Um, why the difficulty I have with the loving-kindness meditation, it's just this very, very thick brick wall with doubt, with the inner, the doubt, the, the lens, the, 
the very critical lens of within. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with doing it for, for the them. children I teach, for myself. Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. I'm fine with, uh, I'm not fine, but it's, it's, it's hard for me to get through. The, it's just such a, con it's like, I feel like I'm beating my head against a wall constantly with sitting, with therapy, with loving kindness medication, you know. So how could I use the wording, the phrasing for the loving kindness meditation to help with that critic, the critical lens, which mm -hmm. even though it's toward myself, it affects everyone else. Uh -huh. thank, thank you again. Um, thank you. Uh, and thank you for being here. Happy birthday. Um, I think there are a few things. One, of, I mean... I always say if you're trying to assess whether a practice is working, look at your life, not at the practice. Because it may be you don't have a great sense of a breakthrough or tearing through that wall when you're sitting, but when you do make a mistake or something happens, there's a more softness and there's a growing softness, even though the the inner critic may come up really strongly, maybe they're not lasting as long, or maybe it's intermittent. You like fall into it, and then you have some space, and you fall into it, and you have some space. I just feel after teaching for so long and working with so many people that in a lot of ways we don't give ourselves enough credit. You know, people often say, oh, well, I'm still getting overwhelmed, and it's the same, same petty thing that's driving me crazy. But what we don't realize is that that overwhelm used to last all day. And now it's lasting 40 minutes. And that 40 minutes doesn't feel good. So very few people say, wow, that's a big change in the quality of my life. That used to last all day. You know, and so I see people so discouraged, and, and yet they're so different. Um, it's also hard to remember to look at your life rather than at your practice. Um, someone once took me out, and I think this is very true with loving-kindness practice, Someone once took me out to lunch, and it was like a confessional lunch in New York. He started out by saying, I just have to confess something. So I said, oh, what? And he said, uh, I, he, you know, he said, I've been doing loving kindness practice as my practice for about three years now, whether I'm on retreat or I'm just sitting each day at home. And he said, I have to say that my experience sitting down now three years later is not so very different from what it was when I started. But he said, I'm like a completely different person. He said, I'm different with myself. I'm different with my family. I'm different ethically. I'm different with my community. And then he looked at me and he said, is that enough? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, I kind of think that's enough. You know, but we want that great breakthrough experience. I love myself completely before 5 o'clock. I can leave early. You know, um, so that's another thing. Mindfulness is a big help because that voice will arise just through force of habit. But how we relate to it is everything. We don't need to take it so to heart. We don't have to absorb it. At the same time, fighting it and hating it isn't going to work. You know, it just exhausts us. And so... That's why we talk about mindfulness as being like the place in the middle, where you're neither falling into something to be defined by it, nor struggling against it. You can just like be there. So the story I often tell um, is about uh, this time a friend of ours rented a house 
on the Cape in Massachusetts for several of us to do a retreat in. And when I went into the bedroom that had been set aside for me, I saw someone had left a cartoon on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she said, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is? The problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) And then in the second frame, Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? Then in the third and final frame, Lucy says, being Lucy, she says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) And somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation by that desk, my eye would fall right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. Because that Lucy dominant voice had been so strong in my earlier life. So... I've also spent a lot of time, you know, there's so many ways of practicing mindfulness as well as loving kindness. So I spent a lot of time um, in retreat centers where the technique was one of mental noting, where you would note in, out, in, out with the breath. And then when something came up strongly, sensation, emotion, something like that, if the word came easily, you would just put a label on it, thinking, joy, sorrow. So I felt like seeing that cartoon gave me a new set of mental labels, which were things like, hi, Lucy. (laughs) You know, I'd have a great experience, and my very next thought would be, it's never going to happen again. And I'd note that, hi, Lucy. (laughs) Or my favorite form of that was, chill out, Lucy. Just chill out. It wasn't like, you're right, Lucy. You're always right. Nor was it, oh, my God, Lucy's still here. I've been meditating more than 40 years, and Lucy's still here. Spent $10,000 in therapy just last year, and Lucy's still here. It was like, hi, Lucy. Chill out, Lucy. You know, neither like sucking it in, like I am Lucy. Lucy's always right, nor hating it and fearing it. That's mindfulness. So then you don't have to worry about how often Lucy visits or how strident she is. You have such a totally different relationship to her, to it, that voice, that is so different, even though she's maybe there. So we're going to stop now for lunch. We have a few announcements, I think, and then we will pick up with questions again just as soon as we, we come back. Um, you're one of the reasons why I'm here, Sharon. Thank you. You're one of the reasons why Spirit Rock is here. (laughs) Um, I'm sure everyone in this room has some sort of connection, some profound, deep connection to Sharon. Um, I first encountered you uh, in my second year as a monastic, and I was asking Ajahn Amaro, what can I do about heart practice? And he said, read Sharon Salzberg's book, Berg's books. And um, I spent two weeks with that book, and I cried every day. And it was two of the best weeks of my life. 
Um, and I just, I, uh, I just got engaged, and I think that I wouldn't have found the one woman of my dreams without the practices that you've, you've shared. Um, so I, I really can't thank you enough for your teachings. Um, and I'm sure, you know, everyone here has some sort of deep connection, uh, whether you know it or not. Uh, she is the teacher of teachers of teachers of, uh, loving kindness. Um, of course it goes back to the Buddha and his teachers, but, um, she's made such a, a profound impact on the Dharma in the West and how these practices of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity have been taught uh, for our daily lives here in the West. Um, so, um, you know, and I share these with my parents as they age. You know, their, their minds may go, uh, but their hearts will get stronger. Um, and um, so I, I have a lot of gratitude. Um, and so I, I have a lot of uh, gratitude for you, gratitude and generosity, um, uh, just uh, manifest in my heart when I think of you. Um, I um, would just encourage and invite anyone here that if you would like to help support Sharon or show a form of uh, gratitude for Sharon on any impact she's made uh, on your practice or your life, um, to thank her. Um, and one of the ways that you're welcome to do that is by making a donation to Sharon. Uh, she lives off of the support of her students. And so if you would like to support her and her teachings and her, her practice and her, her life, uh, you're welcome to do so. Uh, we have wicker baskets in the foyer collecting donations to Sharon. 100% of everything that's put in the baskets will go to Sharon. Uh, she's not collecting a fee for being here. She's flown out here from the East Coast to teach here and at Stanford, uh, but she's not being paid by Spirit Rock. Um, and uh, in the tradition of the Buddha and the monastics, teachers teach freely uh, out of their own generosity and their own commitment to uh, helping these teachings survive and flourish. So... Um, if you would like to support her, uh, I delight in your merit. Um, and um, if you would like to write a check, please address it to Spirit Rock. But 100% of those funds will go to Sharon. Uh, credit card forms are in the basket if you'd like to do that. Um, I'm sure she would love thank you notes or stories of how she's impacted you. Anything that you'd like to share. Uh, please feel free to do so. Um, uh, again, we have books in the back corner. She's happy to sign books for you. 
um, uh, maybe at the beginning or end of lunch. Mm -hmm. Do you have a preference on timing? Uh, probably I'll come in here earlier than, than two. Okay, so, so maybe one forty-ish. Yeah. Um, so at the end of lunch, if you'd like to come in, and um, we have post-its, if you'd like to uh, write out the name for her to uh, address the book to, um, you can have that ready. We're going to be returning here by 2 o'clock. Uh, if you didn't bring your lunch and you're not sure what to do, please see me. I have maps for local delis and restaurants. It's a friendly reminder, please don't pass the, the wooden gate up the road. Um, we have... Sorry? Thank you. Yeah, and there is a trail that um, goes up the mountain, and then if you make a left, you'll go down into the retreat area. Once you start seeing buildings, we invite you to take a U-turn, please. Um, we have a microwave in the foyer, utensils, plateware. Please help yourself. Um, and uh, we'll ring the bell outside at 1.50. You're welcome to eat in here. Um, please be mindful of the carpets. And anywhere outside on the land is available to you as well. So uh, we'll be back here by 2 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.